Welcome to the One Voice, Nothing New Under the Sun podcast. I'm your host, Daniel. As the midterm elections heat up, races are won or lost on the smallest of issues. A well-placed photo op or a careless social media post could vastly shift the outcome of a race. And in all the madness of the race to a government seat, there is a contingent of the Christian church that feels now is the perfect time to marry the church's influence to the state's power. Others seem to have the opposite opinion, though, and are pushing relentlessly for the separation of church and state to be even wider. Where should we as Christians stand on this topic? Should we be with those who want the church to control the state? Or are we to believe that the state and church should operate completely different centers of influence? You are listening to the One Voice, Nothing New Under the Sun podcast, where we seek to apply biblical and historical knowledge to today's problems. Join me on this journey through the past to demystify our present. During the recent elections, there has been a push in some religious circles to elect politicians who would push for legislation that is Christian in character. And many Christians, who don't even really care about politics overall, are fully on board with making America more Christian. And at first glance, this really makes sense because making America more Christian would seemingly solve many of the ills and evils of society. But Proverbs 14.12 cautions us that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I believe that the push for the church's involvement in the state is a way that will lead to the death of the church and the death of the country as we know it. But before we get into why I believe that, let's pray for the Holy Spirit's leading as we study his word. Dear Heavenly Father, please be with us as we sit here today to unravel the complexity behind this church and state marriage or the church has influence over the state or the state having influence over the church. Dear God, please help us to figure out the truth and what we should do as Christians in this day and age when confronted with this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. The situation of Christians campaigning for religious legislation is troubling to me because historically speaking, every time a religious organization took control of a state in this way, it has always, always, always led to religious and civil intolerance and persecution. The first time we see something like this is when Christ came to earth to set up the Christian church, uh, his first advent. At this time, the leadership of the church was the Sanhedrin. And because the leadership didn't believe in Christ, they used the arm of the law. At that time, it was Pilate to kill the son of God and crucify him. And then they persecuted his followers after he rose and went back to heaven. But the Jews were not even the worst offenders when it comes to a religious organization using the state to further its goals. In fact, the worst offender can be seen in the dark or middle ages with the Catholic Church. From the time the Roman Catholic Church usurped authority over the rest of Christendom around the year 538 AD until they lost power in the 1700s, they had killed more people than any other single power in history. And these people were not criminals. These people were not violent people. These were people that simply disagreed with the doctrines that the Catholic Church taught. All because they felt it was their prerogative to punish what they considered heretics using the arm of the law. 
This was so bad that most of the wars fought in Europe from the mid-1500s through the 1700s were fought by a population desperate for religious freedom against the tyranny of a state church. Things like the Thirty Years' War, or the Dutch War of Independence, or the um, French War of Independence slash the Reign of Terror. These things were all fought because the Catholic Church had kept the people under bondage so long that they had rebelled violently. As soon as they lost the power over the governments of Europe, they lost the ability to kill innocent people, and they haven't done that ever again, even up to the present time. Now, while the Church of Rome is the most vicious of the Christian organizations to take control over secular government, that doesn't mean that all other churches would be fine in her place. Not at all. Because I want you to consider the Church of England, which is another church that had control over a state at one point. Well, they had full control. They still kind of have control over England as it is now, but they had full control at a certain point. And even though it wasn't as dangerous to nonconformists as the Roman one, it still put many to death and forced many to flee. In fact, the famous Pilgrim Fathers who came here to America came here to flee the persecution of that church. Every Christian domination that has managed to gain control over a government has almost immediately started to persecute those who worship differently than them. Whether it be the Lutherans of Prussia or the Calvinists of Geneva, this has been a recurring theme whenever a church is allowed to influence legislation. And it's not just Christianity that has this issue either. Because when we look at the nations governed by the Islamic faith, even to this day, non-Muslims are mistreated and persecuted or, even, or sometimes even killed in those countries. That's not because Islam is necessarily more violent than Catholicism or Protestantism. It's simply because they have a stranglehold on the governments in those countries, so they use the arm of the law to, I guess you could say, enforce their own tenets of faith on others. The only religions that we have covered so far are the Abrahamic religions. And so it could be argued from some people that this is just a problem with a monotheistic Abrahamic religion. If it was a polytheistic or a pagan religion or some other kind of religion, it wouldn't have this problem. But that's not really the case. Because let me take your mind to a time right after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. At that time, the ruling power that was persecuting Christians was the pagan Roman Empire. And the reason for the Christians to be fed to wild dogs or crucified in the Colosseum or burned at the stake at this time was because the Christians refused to acknowledge that the pagan gods, the Roman pantheon, were deserving of worship. And so because of that, the ruling pagan church at that time felt that this new religion was a threat to them, and so they wanted to get rid of it. This happens every single time, like I was saying. And all of those other state church alliances, one could argue, turned out so badly because they had a false gospel. But if they had a correct gospel, everything would be fine, some would say. The thing is, though, that the Bible teaches that the very act of a church attempting to control a state makes it a false church. Bear with me. Bear with me for a second, because I'm going to attempt to prove that from the Bible. 
Genesis 49, verse 10. Let's start with that. It's a um, prophecy talking about the first coming of Christ or the coming of Shiloh. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The scepter nor the lawgiver will depart from Judah until Christ comes is what this text says. If this was about literal Judah, where the term Jew comes from, then we would have no problem. But in the Bible, does Judah only reference that literal group of people? I was looking throughout the entire Bible to see where I could find Judah. And in order to answer this question. And the answer I came to was interesting. Hebrews 8 verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Judah also refers to the people of God because whenever a new covenant is mentioned by God, it is talking about the New Testament church. So it cannot be literal Judah because literal Judah is not the New Testament church. The New Testament church is our church, the Christian church. So when it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, he's saying, I will make a new covenant with my people. So Judah in prophecy is related to God's people. I want you to remember that. When we read in Genesis 49 verse 10, it says, the scepter, which means the king, shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver or the legislative branch of the government from between his feet until Shiloh come. Which means that God's people from that point on would never hold le um, executive or legislative power in government. Just in case anyone doubts that this prophecy is in reference to the first coming and not the second one, it was fulfilled in his first advent. Around the time Jesus was born, Herod the Great was installed as the ruler of Israel, who at that time were the people of God, or the house of Israel, house of Judah. This marks the first time since that prophecy was given that the scepter, or the executive, or the kingly branch of government was taken away from God's people, because Herod wasn't an Israelite. He was an Idumean, which is a descendant of Esau. Around the same time, the Sanhedrin lost the ability to give out the death penalty for crimes against their religion by themselves. They had to ask for the approval of the Roman overlords, in this case, Pilate, when they had to put Jesus to death, thus depriving the people of God from access to their own lawmaker. They couldn't make their own laws. They had to submit to the laws of a secular power. From that point on, Jesus' people never had any right to impose religious laws or rule as a religious state. When Jesus came, he separated the church from the state in a way that hadn't been done before, which is why he had to say, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God's the things that are God's. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Peter also denies the ability of a human government to rule in matters of faith and conscience in Acts 5, verse 29, which I just want to read real quick. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So in this case, God's laws are going to be different than man's laws, or often are different than man's laws. And so what Peter is saying is man has no right to rule in matters of faith and conscience.
Still later, Paul takes up the argument in Romans 13, 7 through 10. This was very, very, very interesting when I was studying this. Romans 13, 7 through 10. Render therefore all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He admonishes us in these verses to pay taxes, to fear the leadership of the state, which in the Bible means respects them, and to honor them, which in the Bible means to follow their directives, as in the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. But as we read further, he places a hard limit on what those directives that we should follow are when he lists the commandments that deal with our relationship with our fellow men. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So what he's saying is the state has authority when it comes to way we, the way we treat our neighbor, the way we demonstrate our love to our neighbor. The state has authority in those ways which means the state can put you in jail for stealing. The state can put you in jail for killing. The state can put you in jail for being unmindful of the safety of others, uh, reckless driving, what have you. The state can put you in jail for all of these things. But when it comes to our relationship with God, he never mentions the state having any kind of authority. Because in Romans 14, Paul continues this discussion. But this time he does so as it relates to our conduct to God. And this is what he had to say in Romans 14, verse 5. It says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So what he's saying is, when it relates to our fellow man, man can rule. When it relates to God, let every man be persuaded in his own mind by the Holy Spirit of God. So the only authority when it relates to our relationship with God is God himself. There is no authority that we have to um, enforce religious laws or our interpretation of how we should worship God. As I've stated before, that's because when a religion gets a hold of a state's power, they start to persecute anyone not of that faith. If we allow this to happen in America, the laws that will be enacted will be only beneficial to the evangelical churches because they are the ones behind this push towards a religious state. And while most of us are Christians, having that group enact religious laws would destroy our relationship with God and would instead turn it into a relationship with the state if we went along with it. And if we didn't go along with it, it would make our relationship with the state much more dangerous, obviously. But the thing is, even if we want to do that to make the state pure, what would end up happening is the church would become impure because the only way for us to win souls to Christ is for us, for the soul to see the love of Christ and to 
want to be part of Christ's fellowship on his own accord. Every time the word of God talks about bringing souls to Christ, it always speaks about giving a choice. Not using the force of the state to bring people to church. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the ambassador of Christ pleads with the unbeliever. He doesn't force the unbeliever. He doesn't threaten the unbeliever with punishment. He pleads with them to be reconciled to God using the evidence of Christ being made sin for us who knew no sin. That way we can be saved. That is the way God wants us to witness, not using the threat of the law. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which I'll read it as well. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Great Commission that we just read only talks about teaching all nations whatever he's commanded us. Not commanding others what he has commanded us, but teaching others. And teaching doesn't come from a threat of punishment. Teaching comes from a place of desiring others good from the heart, sincerely desiring others good. Jesus himself said that if he was lifted up, he would draw all men to him. Not force all men to him, but draw. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 tells us that God draws us with loving kindness. Um, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Not with threat of punishment. He's not going to drive us. He's going to draw us. Driving is not something a shepherd does. Driving is not something a parent does to the child that they love. Driving is something a prison warden does to prisoners. Driving is not something Christ would do. Driving is something only the devil would do. It is far from the character of God for his people to cause fear in others, that he specifically says he hath not given us a spirit of fear in our witness. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Instead of fear, what God has given us is love power, and a sound mind. The love that worketh no ill to his neighbor, according to Romans 13, verse 10. The power that enables us to be witnesses in the entire world, as Acts 1, verse 8. I'll read that as well. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses, not judges, not executioners, not enforcers of the law, but witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And finally, the sound mind to give everyone a reason for the hope that is within us, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. Nowhere in scripture do we see God using the strong arm of the law to draw people to him. So I implore you, fellow Christians who are politically minded, not to vote for or in any other way support those who would make a mockery of our faith in this manner. 
not even just cease your support, but actively work against all who do such things. Because the Bible clearly admonishes us in Ephesians 5 verse 11 to have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. This doesn't mean that Christians can't be involved in politics, nor does it even mean that Christians can't hold political office, obviously. But we cannot use that authority to force others to live Christian lives, because that's impossible. It's impossible to force others to live Christian lives, because if we do that, they're simply behaving. We are simply making hypocrites. And if we create a Christian law, we are creating a law that will make hypocrites. We will not be creating converts. We'll be creating hypocrites. Now, the way to do this, the way to be a Christian politician without using our authority to make Christian laws is found in the Bible's counsel to servants. Because aren't all politicians supposed to be public servants? So I just want to read to you a couple of examples of what the Bible has to say about servants. Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 8. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing services to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Another one is Colossians 3, verse 22 through 25. Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not to men. Knowing this, that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Jesus. But he that doeth wrong shall receive of the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. And First Timothy 6 verse 1, and then First Peter 2 verse 18. Those are the next two I'm going to read. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine shall not be blasphemed. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So for the public servants called politicians, the way for them to be Christian in their office is to listen to what their constituents say or their masters, because in that case, that's who their masters are, and obey their um, wants, listen to their wants and listen to their needs and fulfill them to the best of their ability, not with eye service as men pleasers, not making promises that they can't keep in order to get into office, but as if they were serving God, as if these people were in the place of God to them as it concerns their job. They need to respect and follow the dictates of those constituents, even the ones that they disagree with, not just the good and gentle, but even the froward, according to the word of God. That is what being a Christian politician is, not ramming their own interpretation of the scriptures into legislation. Politicians that act in such a Christ-like manner to the people they represent will have a much greater influence for the gospel than a politician 
who simply tries to force others to live according to his standards using the law. For even Christ pleased not himself, but became obedient unto his master, even unto death, the death of the cross. Romans 15 verse 3 and Philippians 2 verse 8 tells us, that is how we serve God and man, not by attempting to force other people to serve God the way we have been um, convicted to, but by serving them in their needs, by fulfilling their needs, ministering to what their what they want to see in legislation, not by putting what we believe Christianity is into law. Because when we put what Christianity is into law, like I said, it never brings the world closer to the church. It only ever brings the church closer to the world. And will always, always corrupt the church and destroy the peace and prosperity of the country or government that falls under such a regime, religious regime. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this study. Please help us to understand and put this in practice. Please help us to not be so adamant about having other people follow what we believe the Bible says that we put it into law. Please help us to be humble. Please help us to serve others in the political realm or in even our daily lives. Please help us to live the way you would have us live as Christians in this world so that we can be witnesses for you in the uttermost parts of this earth. Please help us not to try to make America a Christian nation, but please help us to strive to always make it a land of freedom for everyone of all faiths because that's the only way for us as Christians to be a light in this world and please be with all of our listeners please guide them and help them in their daily lives and their daily struggles in Jesus name Amen Hey guys, I hope this episode was informative thought provoking or even just entertaining If you enjoyed it, make sure to share it with your friends and family. Oh, and please leave a review if you had any strong reaction to what I've shared, whether good or bad. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, commenting on the video and liking it will help get it in front of more people. And last but not least, thank you for listening, and may the truth prepare the way for the soon coming of our Lord.